welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we talk to students, educators, and thought leaders who are innovators and creatives in education. I'm your host, Tanya Sheckley. Thanks for joining us. Hello, everyone. I'm joined today by Bob Lenz, CEO of PBL Works. Thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate your time, Bob. Yeah, my my pleasure, Tanya. So you are CEO of PBL Works. You've worked with Envision Education, um, Buck Institute, and and of course, PBL Works. And they all focus on utilizing project-based learning in the classroom to support and to improve student outcomes. So what major challenge in education did you see that led you to initially start down this path of project-based learning and education? You know, it's interesting. I don't know uh, if I went down the path because I was solving a problem. Um, I I think eventually I've seen it as a solution, but I actually started my journey with project-based learning when I was in the fifth grade with Mr. Cooper. He was an amazing educator and I often uh, attribute my um, passion about project-based learning to the poetry project that we did in the fifth grade where we studied poetry and then we wrote our own original poems and then created our own uh, actual physical books and had a poetry reading where we got dressed up and our community came to hear us read our poems. Um, I got my first public applause and say that might be why I ended up in as many opportunities as I could to do public speaking. <laughs> you <laughs> I was were like, wow, that's that pretty point. cool. I, I like that. And so then when I, I became a teacher in a K through eight school um, in San Francisco, serving predominantly um, Chinese American families, a range of times when they immigrated into the United States. And I was trying to figure out how I engage my kids and not just do traditional learning. I could see that that just wasn't working. And so I did my version of the poetry project in um, San Francisco, and we partnered with the City Lights bookstore. We were able to get a poet to come in and read her poems with our students, and they read their poems. And and then I moved to a high school here in the San Francisco, north of San Francisco, Marin County. And we did versions of that, of the poetry project with them, doing what we call MTV poetry in our communications academy. And then once again, with our students in, in the Envision schools, and we did the, a similar project there. So what I found out is that the same project, same theme, working mm-hmm. at every grade level to engage kids, not only in their learning, but really starting to love poetry. Like I still uh, like to read and write poetry. And it all started when I was in the fifth grade. But I do see as when I was working at Drake High in um, San Anselmo, we were a national model um, in the 1990s. We were a new American Mm -hmm. high school, one of 13 in the country, got to go to the White House. We were featured in US News and World Report and hundreds of people are coming visiting the school and they would say, they'd see the projects like the MTV Poetry or others that we did. And they would say, well, this is amazing, but it would never work for our kids. And that was because it was predominantly a white community. And I just didn't believe it. And so we brought the same model to kids in San Francisco and Oakland and Hayward and saw that what project-based learning has done in the Envision schools is actually prepared kids for college success. And um, we know that we have about an 85% persistence rate in those schools. And when Linda Darling Hammond and her team at Stanford followed up when they were in college, the, one of the top reasons the students gave for feeling prepared was project-based learning. Because not only are they learning the academics, they were 
they felt like they were actually ahead of their peers, which most time first generation students don't, in the ability to collaborate and to public speak um, and to manage projects. Because we think of college as like one big project. That's where I, you know, I, I think it's essential that all students, especially black and brown students, have the opportunity to do project-based learning. And that's, I mean, you started, first project you ran was in a school that was primarily Chinese Americans. And so you you saw from the that's very right. beginning how it works in different schools and different settings um, mm-hmm. before the success that you saw at Drake. Um, that's right. So when I taught project-based learning with the middle schoolers, high schoolers, and then I did summer school with multi-age second and third grade class mm-hmm. and did PBL with the uh, second and third graders. And that was primarily a Latinx community. So it doesn't matter where you're from, what your background, what your grade level. It works for adult learners as well. I mean, it's just a really great way to learn and get simultaneous outcomes. Because you learn the knowledge you need. We call that the knowing. You can demonstrate and apply that learning, call it the doing, and then when it's done in a high quality way, there's lots of opportunities for reflection and the metacognition that lets you think about how you're going to transfer that learning. So I like to call it no, do, reflect. Those are the three outcomes that, that you get. Yeah, it's interesting. You you brought up a lot of different things. And one of the things that I hear a lot from parents and, and maybe your educators that you work with hear this as well is is that tension between is project-based learning really teaching academics? Are my kids really going to be prepared? Are they really learning what they need to know? Are they learning all of the facts and information that their peers are learning that they're going to need to be successful? And so when you when you hear that from parents or if you hear that from school districts, how do you kind of rectify that tension between you know traditional learning and the learning of facts and academics versus the project-based learning and the, the doing of learning? How do you explain that to others? Yeah, a few ways. One is, I think that I call it one of the myths of education that just because somebody teaches it, that you learn it. So uh, my sense is that, and some good studies have borne this out, that kids who do well in school will memorize things for a test and then forget about them in about a week or two afterwards. So just because it was covered, you know, doesn't mean that it was it was learned. Uh, brain research and learning science would let you know that really to hold on to information, you need to ha- your brain needs context. And so project-based learning and using inquiry and challenge and sustained inquiry is a way to build, and authenticity is a way to build context. So when you're learning the facts and the skills and the knowledge, you actually will remember it because you have something else to hook it onto, not just a test. There's a famous study where they took students who took a test and uh, they looked at their grades and it was a typical bell curve. And then they went back to those same kids, I think a month or six weeks later, and they gave them the same test. And then almost everybody failed it, even the kids who did well. And then finally, there's really promising research that's coming out at all grade levels that's um, actually demonstrating in a random control studies, which will be released in 21. That will demonstrate that uh, project-based learning not only is engaging kids and teaching them the success skills like collaboration and critical thinking and communication, but they're actually remembering more on the content than than students who are taught in a traditional way. So I think we're we're going to see in the coming years that our qualitative experiences with PBL are going to match up with the data. With the data, yeah. It's interesting because it's it's one of the things I think about a lot, like being an adult and growing up in the education system. If I only still knew everything I had been taught, like, 
for all of us if we still knew everything we had been taught. But there's those pieces, like you remember Mr. Cooper's poetry class. And I remember Mrs. Han's frog experiment, the classroom. It wasn't even my classroom. The classroom across the hall raised frogs from tadpoles. And I would go in every opportunity I had just to go look at their aquarium because I thought it was so cool. I don't remember other pieces of learning, but there are those things that stick out in your mind because you had that experience and you had the ability to be able to do that. It's another thing I talk about with our students and just how engaged they are. And like you said, just because we taught it doesn't mean they learned it. And I think of the teacher standing and asking, you know, does anyone have any questions on what we covered? And there's just crickets and nobody asks any questions versus when you have a classroom that's very collaborative and project-based, the students are just always asking questions all the time and always curious and always engaged. And so it shifts that whole dynamic and, and they want to learn that. They're not just being expected to absorb information. Yeah. I was going to say, you took the ability as a young teacher to really see that the way your classroom was being run prior to you wasn't working as well, and to initially try that first poetry project. And so you had that agency as a teacher to be able to do that in your school. And we don't see that everywhere. So how can we give educators more agency to really use their creativity um, and use their education and all of the things that they've learned in their classrooms? You know, so that they can learn, so that they can listen, so they can follow student interests instead of just having to follow a district curriculum. You know, how can we make that agency more available to more educators? Yeah, I think, you know, some, it just depends on the, the school of the district. But I think most schools and districts, if teachers are building unit plans and that are project-based, and they can use a project planner that we have from the PBO Works or another one, it really shows how that's tied to the content standards. I mean, the poetry project is one of the content standards for the fifth grade to read and analyze poetry instead of just having it be, um, well, the other thing Mr. Cooper did is this was the 1970s. So we were analyzing Beatles poems. And so it wasn't just a traditional, he was playing the music of the poets of the, and the songwriters of the seventies, mm-hmm. um, which then hooked us in. And then, you know, and then we read traditional poetry, but then he asked us to do something with it and not just take a test. He asked us to demonstrate what we were learning in reading poetry and analyzing it. And so I think uh, teachers, I don't think you have to ask permission to do that. Um, But even if you did, having it mapped out as to why you're doing it and how you're doing it, then most uh, principals are are not going to have a problem with that. What I hear from a lot of teachers in public education is a lot of concern about state accountability test. And that's when we go back to our previous question about knowledge building. It's this fallacy that, that I have to teach traditionally and that it's the only way kids are going to get it. The other thing we see a lot of is what we call, instead of having project-based learning be the main course, it's the dessert. It's after you've eaten your spinach because it was good for you, then you get to have some ice cream. And I always tell people like, you know, my kids would leave the table and pass on to the dessert because they didn't want to eat the Brussels sprouts. Now, we learned that if we put a lot of bacon in the Brussels sprouts, we could get them to eat it. And then they stick around for a dessert. But I think what a lot of happens for kids is they don't like the Brussels sprouts. They're not going to eat them and they're not going to do the dessert. So it's a lose-lose. So if teachers really are passionate about what they're teaching and, and want kids to learn, then we got to figure out a way to engage them in a way that gets them all the way through it. Like They don't have to wait till the end to do something good. 
Um, because most often it's a many, you know, at least half the kids won't be engaged with you by then. Mm-hmm. Um, the other challenge often, and and sometimes in independent schools, is uh, as you were saying that the fear of parents and of uh, that oh you're not teaching it the way I taught it or I was taught or mm-hmm. oh my god are they going to be competitive and whatever the next level is. And one of the great things about project based learning is it's public, and so one of the most powerful things for parents is to watch their kids presenting their learning publicly over time. We used to do some really great things and like, you know, started project-based schools. Parents are really nervous. They're like, are they even learn anything? And so in the second year of one of our schools, we did a parent session where we did, we taught them how to score uh, student essays using a rubric. Mm -hmm. And so we all calibrated around this piece of work and they were like, this kid needs a lot of work on their writing. And they had all the reasons why the writing needed to be better. And, well, they were really worried. And then we had them do another piece. And they were like, whoa, this one's a lot better. This is really, we might even think this is proficient or even better. And then we told them the mystery of it is it was the same student's writing from the ninth grade to the 10th grade. And so as a parent, I think you just want to be assured that your students are learning and we need to involve them in the process, whether that be assessing the work. But if you watch a student in a vision school that's presenting their projects two or three times a year, they have to graduate by portfolio. Parents have engaged with their students around real things that the students are interested in and having to display their content knowledge as well as their uh, skills multiple times. And they can really see from the time they're 14 to the time they're 18 that they're actually matured and grown or ready for the, for the next step. So I think it's actually a much more powerful way for parents to feel like their kids are learning than a grade. I mean, grades are so subjective um, and they're often averages. An A in one class can be be a, a C in another. But if you're actually looking at your students' work, then you really have a sense of what they know and they can do. Yeah. So I'm really interested in hearing more about that and about, you know, you mentioned that they graduate by portfolio. So what does that assessment process look like? You know, how do you assess, how do you build that portfolio and what are they actually walking away with? And I ask as a bigger picture in in project-based learning and in education, just as we're looking at switching assessments and a lot of standardized tests, at least in the short term, you know, for college admissions are going away. And there's, you know, a lot of talk of moving away from grades, you know, but then how, how do we assess? And as a small startup school, it's something that we've We've looked at the rubric and putting in numbers or putting in letters or putting in, you know, how they're doing with emerging or progressing or they've mastered a thing. We've also gone the complete other way and written a full narrative assessment on just progress. And we do, like you're saying, our, our students do three different exhibition days a year. They're sharing their projects, they're presenting, they're sharing their learning. But what does that portfolio assessment really look like? Yeah, that's great. Um, well, I can describe the uh, middle school, high school that uh, the Envision Education Systems uses and that Envision Learning Partners helps schools and districts implement mm-hmm. around the country. And we partner with them as well as embedding performance assessments in our project units that we we share with folks. But uh, we worked with uh, Stanford uh, University in the early 2000s to design a performance assessment system that has two components. One is a set of common task frameworks that are performance tasks that are meant to be used in the context of a project. And they can be used outside, but they're common. 
So there's a common framework about what needs to be included in the task, and there's a common rubric to score it. And that goes across the whole system. And so it maybe it's scientific inquiry and it's related to the common core. So students should be able to demonstrate their ability to sustain inquiry, develop a test, run that test, and then analyze the results and share the results. That can be in a science project. It could be in a social studies project or maybe another discipline. But the standard is the same no matter where you go. So students are are practicing and mastering that, and it's on a four-point rubric. And so whether they're proficient or not, if it's not proficient, they need to revise until they get to proficient. And then they're collecting these pieces. At the 10th grade and the 12th grade, they look at their pieces and they decide which of these work with a summary. So they describe what they did. It helps collectively shows that I have the vision leadership skills mastered critical thinking, collaboration, project management, and communication skills. And are they self-assessing? No, the the teachers are assessing that work and they calibrate. So they work, the teachers to calibrate. So they're all clear, say in the 10th grade, what is proficient. The students pull that together. They work with an advisor uh, and they pull that together. It's kind of like a graduate school dissertation. They pull together four or five pieces of work and make a presentation to a panel made up of teachers, um, administrators, sometimes a student in the 12th grade. And they make the case using this evidence that they are ready for the next step. If it's 10th grade, going to the upper division from 12th grade into college or career, whatever their choice is. Mm-hmm. And um, if they don't pass, which about, about a third of kids don't pass on their first go, they work with their advisor and they revise and they present again. And then that gets down to about 10%. Usually by the third time, all the students have gotten through. So I like to call it a real rite of passage. It's missing a lot in our communities right now. Other like in high school, really prom is your rite of passage. And not everybody gets to, you know, ends up going to the prom. But this is something that everyone goes through. And the adults in the community are saying, you are ready for your next step. And it's based on the evidence of your work, not on a grade. Now, those things could be easily, you know, transferred over to something like a mastery transcript, or you could use, still use a narrative. But this is one of those things, like for parents, like some of my most powerful experiences have been graduating seniors doing their portfolio presentation as the first person in their family to go to college and their parents are there. Oh my God, every, you know, there's not a dry eye in the place. And everybody is completely confident that this young person is ready for what they're going to do next. Well, right now, I don't know that we know. And they're actually most often have some interest and passion about what they might want to study in college because they've been going deeper and mastering things, not just getting through courses to get to the next course, to get to the test, to get. Yeah. And then they've had to go so to many more experiences. Yeah. Um, all the students at the Imagine schools do a, a, at least one workplace learning experience, too, where they learn deeply at a work site, have their interest, mm-hmm. and they and they do a project there. So they start to explore also what their career interests might be. In the younger grades, I've seen really done well as student-led conferences, which it's very similar. It's just a little lower stakes where the kids are working to pull together a portfolio of their work around some sort of standard, like their graduate profile, and showing mm-hmm. how that work and explaining demonstrates that they're making progress on being in whatever the standard is. Sure. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing all of that. It sounds like a phenomenal way to assess students and really 
not only for the parents to have them feel ready, but for the student to gain that self-esteem and that confidence first and that knowledge that all the work that I have been doing really is leading somewhere and and for them to take a chance for that self-reflection and understand, you know, really all of the skills and the knowledge they have gained. That's a phenomenal experience for them as well. So how does all of this work now that we're distance learning? <laughs> you know, how have you worked with educators to make project-based learning work through a Zoom screen, you know, when we're not together, when we can't have that shared experience in person? How are you coaching educators to work with that from a distance? We have a whole mini site on our website, mm-hmm. uh, pboworks.org, that's set up for tools and tips and advice for project-based learning in remote settings. And we held some webinars in the uh, late spring um, where Mm -hmm. educators and to highlight the technology tools. We believe actually that um, the remote learning uh, lends itself pretty well to project-based learning a lot better than traditional learning. Because because of the technology, you still can use collaborative groups the teacher mm-hmm. can move around those groups using things like Nearpod. Um, you can be doing group uh, brainstorming and ideating on the screen and mm-hmm. sharing resources with students that they can watch together or, um, or independently. And mm-hmm. then being able to keep the content that's happening in the, on Zoom shorter and then sending kids back either individually or, or in groups to do investigations uh, do the research, do some analysis, you know, pre-analysis, and then come back. And now kids are sharing, you know, now the people that are talking on the Zoom um, screen are teams of students who are sharing their learning. The opportunities for collaboration on products with experts, I think, is a little a little easier since you don't have to get somebody to come into your classroom. You can have them come onto the Zoom screen. They can give kids feedback. And then exhibitions become really public and you can do those as well. So we've seen teachers who have embraced this have quite a bit of success, especially if they were doing project-based learning before the pandemic. If they're going into it right now, then we really suggest little baby steps with students and keep it short tasks that are gone because kids just haven't, if they haven't learned how to self-manage, outside of a classroom, it's, you know, you're just passing that on to the parents <laughs> um, to, to manage. So we're working really in, in partnerships with the parents so that they're really clear about uh, the investigations that maybe younger students are going to need to do so that they're feeling like they're partners in this. But between that and also hybrid, I, we think that hybrid works out very well too, is probably I think in the spring, we'll see much more schools doing smaller pods and as vaccines roll out and there and hopefully mm-hmm. the surge ends. Similarly, you have the kids in, you can set the stage, they can go home, do some research, do some product building, whatever it's going to be, then come back to school and share and revise and critique, get some more information, go back and forth. So it, it can really facilitate given the remote situation, I think it's and how bored and disengaged kids are, I think it's even more imperative now than it ever was that teachers try this. I mean, at this point, really, like, what do you got to lose? Because it's it's clearly not working for many kids to do a traditional classroom on a Zoom screen. So why not try to mix it up? Because, you know, I don't think it could get any worse. That's one way (laughs) to look at it. (laughs) Um, Well, sometimes I think it feels like you're going to take a risk. In this case, like, I think it's all upside on the risk. (laughs) 
Yes. Yeah. But you do bring up a good point for students. You had mentioned a couple of things in there. Number one, the project-based learning, you know, as another benefit, really helping the students learn to self-regulate and self-manage. But for students who haven't been doing that and teachers who haven't been doing that in their classroom, the need to start small because that's a muscle that needs to build and needs to grow. So starting with smaller activities, um, especially from a distance and then growing into larger projects through time. But I think you're right. It's a great time to start and it's a great time to learn. And we have access to so many more people in industry in the world that we maybe didn't have access before because they couldn't come to the school, but they can hop on a Zoom call for 15 minutes and share their knowledge. Um, Yes. We did a prototype in the spring of what we're now calling pop-up projects where we, we built out all the resources that a middle school teacher would need to do a two week project on sustainability. They got all the materials and some training, a little bit of training on things like Nearpod. Then they just started doing the project. And then we had office hours three times a week where people could come back into Zoom, the teachers, and say, okay, what's next? Or I'm I'm struggling with this. And so we're now going to launch those uh, in 21 where teachers can sign up. There's a fee, but they get the project and it's a short project, sort of just to to what we were talking about. So they can start engaging their kids in a very controlled way, but still student and learner centered. And for teachers who've never done project-based learning before, but are interested and haven't had a chance to do a training or, but they really do want to do something different, they have everything they need and some ongoing support. So it's not like they're just throwing them out there. We're hopeful that that'll get some people, give them now, if they're ready to take the risks, then they also have um, the tools and support they need to make something different happen for their students during this pandemic. That's rolling out for middle school teachers? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. A way to kind of get your toes wet and have some support and backing um, yeah. and a soundboard to help. That sounds amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing your ideas and your time and talking about assessment and project learning. This has been fantastic. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, my pleasure. It was fun. And uh, <laughs> happy new year and and uh, good luck with the rest of the school year. I'm hopeful and optimistic that 21 and beyond, are, we're going to move into some good places in the world. Me too. We have a huge opportunity to to do some things differently. And we've learned a lot over the past year. So I think there's, there's a lot of fun times ahead. Yeah, so, great. Thank All you. Right. Take care, Tanya. <laughs> you too. Thank you for listening to the Rebel Educator podcast. To learn more about us, visit rebeleducator.com, where you can learn about our professional development opportunities for educators and students and see our project library. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, check out our progressive, inclusive elementary school, Up Academy, at upacademysf.com. We'd like to say a special thank you to Atmosphere, for use of their audio track, Miho. Thanks again for joining us, and we wish you well no matter where your educational journey may lead. <laughs>